Welcome once again to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing ambitious software startups. That's a throwback intro. If you've been listening for more than a couple years, you might remember that phrase from the prior intro. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This is episode 538, where I welcome Anar Volset back on the show. He's my co-founder with Tiny Seed. And we talk about listener questions today. We zip through, man, I think it's maybe six questions, seven questions about when to sunset a product, filling out enterprise security assessments, acquiring a company where the previous owner had sold lifetime deals and not disclosed it. Before we dive into that conversation, wanted to let you know that our next MicroConf Remote is coming up at the end of March. You can head to microconfremote.com for info about that. We're diving into early stage marketing tactics. I believe we're going to have five sessions where each one is a case study with numbers looking at a specific early stage SaaS marketing tactics. So if you're at the place where you're scratching and clawing for first users or first customers, I'd say if you're sub maybe 10K MRR, this MicroConf Remote is designed for you. MicroConfRemote.com to check it out and get your ticket. And with that, let's dive into listener questions with Anar Volset. Anar Volset, welcome back on the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You may be hitting that that Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live mark where you perhaps are the most frequent guest. I don't know. I think I've been like three, maybe four. Well, maybe it's more than that. I don't remember now. I think it is. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Because you were on um, at least one of the like startup, the news roundtables and then Q&A. And then, I don't know, we talked yeah. about company types. Remember LLCs oh, versus yeah, C-Corps yeah, and all yeah, that? Yeah. And then we did one on the PPP type thing, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Sounds... So there's a lot. So it's good to have you back. But for folks who are less familiar with what you've been up to, I mean, your experience, you have a PhD in computer science, and but I won't hold that against you. <laughs> and um, you actually taught at Cornell for a couple of years. You were in Y, you did a startup. You were in Y Combinator in the 2009 class. You have a lot of experience with enterprise sales, with cold outreach, cold outbound email, a lot of experience in M&A, specifically this sell side of SaaS. You founded a company called Discretion Capital that is basically the kind of the go-to that I refer people to if they're th- if they're like, hey, I run a SaaS app, you know, doing seven figures or eight figures. And I've been approached by private equity or by a strategic to, you know, and they've made me an offer and it's like, okay, so... There are people who do this for a living and, you know, you are one of those people with a lot of expertise in it. And so obviously, you know, there's, there's other folks working in there because you and I are focused and working hard on Tiny Seed. Correct. And we just closed Fund 2. Well, time. first Actually, close. Let's call it the first right. close. Come on, give me some more time to fill this sucker I up. I keep saying closed and what I mean is first close. So doing well with that. And then obviously batch three applications are in and, and we're working through those. So why we don't have enough going on, I figured I'd, Pull you under the mic and we answer some listener questions today. Why not? All right. So with that, let's dive into our first question. It's a voicemail from Phil at itscircletime.com. Hey, this is Phil from itscircletime.com. We provide a online classes for kids across the United States of America and Canada Uh, We match them with high-quality teachers that will help them socialize and continue their education. When we launched the company earlier this summer, we started with a preschool-targeted audience with uh, bringing the circle time experience online. 
meeting up to 10 other kids of their, you know, similar age, three to six. Um, since then, we started a new course called Kinder Prep, which has is targeted towards four to six-year-olds who are entering kindergarten or kind of struggling in maybe their distance learning. This has blown up well beyond we could ever have hoped for, which is awesome. Uh, now our, you know, run track for our $450,000 a year annual run rate in only about four months of our history. However, now our new service offering is dwarfing our original in revenue. And I'm kind of curious, like, when would you consider possibly sunsetting or winding down something, you know, even though it's only making like $8,000 of our monthly revenue, that's about a third of what the other product makes. And, and the new one is growing leaps and bounds. Anyways, just wanted to pick your brain and see what you thought. Thank you. Thanks for that question, Phil. And just so you know, Phil sent this voicemail in about a month ago, and we are able to get it get to it already because voicemails always go to the top of the stack. So if you're going to send questions to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com, you want it answered quickly, at least within a month or so, if that's quickly, send, send in voicemails. Some of the other written questions we're answering here are from like October of last year. And sorry, it's been a, been a little bit of a backup, but Phil gave a little more context in writing, and he basically broke it down like... We had this offering, it grew to eight or nine K a month, and then we added a second offering and that far outpaced it. And it's three times the revenue. So three plus one, it's like four, you know, 75% of the revenue is the, is the new course. He said, the, and the original service is only doing the eight or nine K is a lot more complex. It has three membership plans versus the new direction with a single plan. And so his question in the end, he says, I guess my core question is what factors would you look at when trying to determine when or if it is a good time to sunset a product or service? I'm in between a rock and a hard place with this issue, and I'd love to hear your advice. So many thoughts. What, what do you think, sir? I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in focus to, uh, to a degree. So it's like it sort of depends a little on how much, you know, how much time is, is being taken up and efforts being taken by the original product. But <laughs> from what we're hearing, it's like this is something that just, three times as large in much shorter time, like anything that, that detracts from that growth, I would be, I'd be wary of, even if a bunch of time has been sunk into the prior product. Yeah, I'm of the same boat. I mean, he said that the, the new product that has taken off is three times, also three times the price of the previous one. So that instantly makes me think, well, could you triple the price of the first one and have similar numbers, you know? Could be, yeah. So... My inclination is usually entrepreneurs want to do too many things and we have shiny object syndrome. And as you're saying, focus is, I think, a core value that, that we both share in that respect. And so I would wrestle with the idea that it, either the new one just has better product market fit and you go all in on that. Or, yeah, I just, I cannot imagine having something that is making three times the money and is three times the price, meaning you have far fewer customers, or I guess you have the same amount of customers doing three times the revenue, I cannot imagine not sunsetting the original one, or at least tweaking the original one, like I said, by tripling the price for new people, or messing around with it to see, can I get the same profitability or the same, you know, level of effort out of this. He also said there were three membership plans, it's just more complicated with the old one. So do away with those and go to a single plan, you know, and maybe you, you grandfather people for now who are already in it, and just try it with new folks, or maybe, you know, you don't. That's the hard part about this, I think, is there, there's a lot of details to it. And my gut feeling is you're going to sunset the previous one, unless you can figure out tweaks to make it as profitable and as easy to run. Because if not, there really is no, there's no reason to spend equal time on two parts of your business if one business is making three times the money. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think like once you found something that's growing three times as fast, <laughs> I don't know if it's growing three times as fast, but certainly like at least that by the looks of things, it would be kind of silly to, to sort of divert your focus onto something that isn't doing as well. That's my view. Yeah. And I think you brought up sunk cost fallacy, which is a good thing to think about, right? A lot of us get attached to our first idea or we get attached to something that's that's working. It's hard to think about all the hours we put into it. You really don't, you know, you don't want to do that in this case. So thanks for the question, Phil. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Matthew. The subject line is split personality marketing. And he says, hi, Rob. While listening to Tiny Seed Tales season two, I was listening to Brian and Scotty talk about their move up market with Gather. And I'll cut in here. Gather, Tiny Seed, Batch One Company, and they have SaaS for interior designers. So back to the email. He says, I got to wondering if it's possible to target a whole new audience as you grow by spinning out a new product, new in quotes, or even a new company that's just a white label version of the original product, probably with different default settings, different features enabled, and different marketing slash support channels. In some ways, it would be a bit like turning the enterprise plan into the enterprise product. I'm guessing it could be dangerous to split your focus, but if you know anyone who's tried it and succeeded or tried and failed, I'd be fascinated to hear their take. Intuitively, it sounds like a terrible but seductive idea trying to have it all, but I can't help feel empathy for the smaller fish Brian and Scotty mentioned who are still arriving at the gather site, but being turned off or turned away by their move up market. What do you think, sir? I'm not sure about this one, I have to admit. But my, my gut feeling is like, wh why isn't there room in the existing brand to have a wide range of price? I mean, because we're talking about price differences. That's, is, presumably, that's what's going on here. Like, I'm, I guess I'm a little unsure exactly what he means by just white labeling and making a new company or a new plan. Like, presumably, it's a, it's a price and positioning thing and presumably mainly a, a price thing. And my question then is like, why isn't there room in the existing brand to have a very wide range of prices? I think a lot of people are almost like anchored to their own price in a weird way. Like people say, oh, I, you know, I have a $19 a month plan, a $49 a month plan and a $99 a month plan. But, you know, we have some bigger customers or if we position slightly differently, maybe we could charge a thousand bucks a month or two thousand bucks a month. And that's probably true. Like it's probably more often true than not if you're selling to the enterprises. But I still would be wary of, I th still think the easier solution is just to, you know, lean into an enterprise plan and have it be a call us, you know, type situation where maybe you thought about the things that, you know, make it an enterprise plan, whether that's, you know, single sign-on or, you know, custom contracts or whatever it is that, that makes it a whole different price point for enterprises. So that would probably be my main question is like, like if it's the same product, it's just a different branding and a different price, then I'm like, why not build that into the existing product? Unless it's like specifically positioned as like the cheaper alternative in the market, which then, then you have a problem, but then you have other problems in my view. Yeah. And I think he's talking about, you know, remember when, when Brian and Scotty started Tiny Seed, they were charging, their lowest price plan was between 20, well, let's say it was 29 or 39, I forget. And by the time... You know, they were six months, eight months in. They were, I believe their lowest price plan is like 200, 250 now. And that's what he's talking about is it's, they did add the enterprise, but they just left out the bottom of the market and they, you know, people who were but, one in. But I think in some cases like that, there just isn't a bottom of the market. You know what I mean? Like particularly for B2B SaaS stuff, it's like if you're meeting somebody, particularly with something like what Scotty and Brian have, it's like, this is a software you use full time. You know, like a lot of the time you're using the software if you're in this industry. 
And who are the people who are spending that much time in some software and it's critical to their business, but they're not willing to spend like $200 a month? Like, does that really exist? Or are these sort of wannabe businesses almost? Like, I would buy it if it was $39 a month. Like, would you really though? Like, would you use it? (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. To Matthew's question of forking off this this higher price plan and making it its own entity. I think that is an absolutely catastrophic idea. I hate it. I hate it with the heat of a thousand burning suns. I mean, the the one thing that we have as entrepreneurs is our time and our focus, right? I guess that's two things, but it's like, that's the most important thing. So can you imagine, okay, I'm going to go register another domain name. I'm going to go, because it's not the code. It's not the product. That's the problem. Like if we're, my guess is Matthew is a product person or an engineer. And we think, oh, if we have this code, why can't we just have two of them and sell the entire, you need two sales teams or two salespeople. You need yeah. two support email inboxes. You need two people supporting it. You need a domain name. Now, how are you going to drive traffic? Well, SEO. Well, SEO is hard enough on one site. Now we're going to split our focus. We're going to create content on, you know, on and on and on. It's all the things you don't think about. Sure, copying the code and flipping a few bits so the defaults are different. That's fine. That's done. But it's everything that's not the product that is like you're running two companies now. And frankly, you know, you'll grow twice as fast, if not faster, if you just focus on one of them. I think trying to do it without this is like trying to to make a decision and avoid loss. And like so many decisions involve some type of loss, right? It's a trade-off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things. To me, it sounds like if if I was to guess, I think he's just sort of scared of having a higher price plan. Uh, or having an enterprise call us type plan and ask for 20 times as much for the enterprise plan. That's what it smells like to me. So then it's like, okay, I'm just going to make this whole different brand and it's the high-end brand. But I mean, unless you're Toyota and Lexus, like this is, a, I don't think is a good idea. Right. And that's that's the thing I've been talking about a lot on the podcast lately is, you know, there's, there's low touch funnels, low or no touch funnels where people come, they sign up, they self-serve. Usually it's $50 or below-ish. And, and those are great little businesses. And frankly, if you get a super high volume, it can be a great, you know, medium sized business, you can get into the definitely six figures and and often like low seven figures. And then there's the high touch businesses, which are going to be more enterprisey. And then there are dual funnels, where you have a low touch funnel and a high touch funnel. And so imagine we are recording right now on software called the Squadcast. And you can imagine Squadcast has people recording fly fishing, very almost hobbyists, you know, not almost, but they are hobbyists who are paying whatever their lowest price plan is on Squadcast, $9 a month to record the podcast. And then you can imagine that Squadcast gets approached by a large podcast network and they should be paying and are willing to pay thousands of dollars a month. That is an amazing, amazing funnel to have both of those. We have other tiny companies who are in that position where, well, you hear Craig Hewitt talking about it on his podcast, where obviously the lowest price Castos. Oh, once again, we are hosting on on Castos, but you know the the lowest price plan there is I believe it's it's maybe nineteen dollars a month. But then they also have this private podcasting, and and they're catering to these enterprises and to you know I think people with big personal brands, and those are much larger deals. And if you have the dual funnel and you can make that work, that to me is like the golden ticket of SaaS. And you could totally, again, you can totally make it with low touch, totally make it with high touch only. We see companies succeeding with only one. But the idea of having both, but splitting them into two separate products to me is like, gives me, it gives me, you know, I'm heart palpitations here thinking about it. Yeah, because a lot of the time, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, Shopify has the same thing, right? They have their low cost, like self-serve, 
you know, start a drop shipping thing and it's it's easy. And then they have Shopify Plus or Pro or whatever it's called, where it's, you know, it's two, three thousand dollars a month to get a Shopify Pro account. And the fact of the matter is, is like a lot I think a lot of the Shopify Pro or is that what it's called? Plus. You know, a lot of those customers, they started out on the lower stuff and then they graduated, they grow to trust their brand and, and then they stepped up to the pro plan or whatever. And if you if you were to separate it and it's like, oh, Shopify is only like the low end stuff, then you might actually put off some of the larger shops who are like, or the medium sized shops who are like, well, let's not go with Shopify because they don't have a top level plan or you know the enterprise version that we might eventually need. So yeah, I, I agree. I'm not. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, and I think for Matthew's part of his question was almost like he said, like I almost feel bad for the the individual interior designers who are hitting their site and being shell shocked at the you know the price raise, the two hundred to two hundred fifty dollar price point. And like you said earlier, well, if they're serious and they're in this software all the time, it's that important. Then they should be willing to do it. And you know, maybe if they really do want to pay forty bucks a month for something, then you you just refer them out to your cheaper competitor who is staying down market, right? I mean, that's that's the other option. We used to refer at Drip. Some people would come to us and they'd say, oh, well, I only have a 1,500-person list and we're a nonprofit. And oftentimes it was like, well, we can either give you a discount or go to MailChimp. They're even free. It's free up to 2000 Like we were not in it for to make $50 a month from, from everybody that came through. Sometimes there were just better options. So I hope that was helpful, Matthew. Our next question comes from Olivier and he has a success story plus a question. This one's actually funny. He said, hey, Rob, I just wanted to thank you for taking a long shot in episode 515 at the 28-minute mark when answering a listener question. The question was from Martin, and it was about where to look to find a co-founder for his startup Activity Messenger. You said he might want to look at his first couple of clients. And here I am, one of his early clients, who is now officially co-founder of Activity Messenger. Rob Walling, founder matchmaker, am I right? (laughs) Nice. No, that's that's nice, super cool. Nice. Love to hear stuff like that. So he says, I've been running a kid's sports business for the last 10 years with another partner that has been mostly running by itself for the last two years. And as a reminder to listeners, Activity Messenger is aimed at kids' sports businesses. And so it's a product built for people like him, right? He was using it as a, as a customer, and now he is involved as a co-founder. So he said, I have two questions for you. The first is, any tips on how I can use to my advantage the fact that I am a client as well as a co-founder in marketing sales or during onboarding calls? What do you think about that, Anar? Yeah, I mean, I would lean into that. I'd be like, yeah, all these, you know, boffin software guys, they don't truly understand the industry like I do because I've been there and done that. Certainly, I think that 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 makes sense. Yeah, and the content stuff and like, yeah, all that stuff. I would certainly lean into that. Like pe- people like to see like, oh, people like me are using this stuff. And, and in general, like that's why you have customer testimonials and things and say, oh, companies like ours use this. But if you have a, a co-founder or someone in the business who's who's been in the industry and sort of can speak the lingo and be that side of things, I do think that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's hit the nail on the head with, I was in this situation with my sports business and this is how it served my need. You know, I mean, you can do that as examples and you have credibility. The other thing that I used to do, because I don't like sales, I don't like sales calls, but I've done them when I needed to, especially in the early days of Drip. I did some for Hittail too, but especially in the early days of Drip, I would get on the call and I'd say, hey, 
I'm a co-founder. I'm not a salesperson. I'm actually a developer <laughs> turned software entrepreneur. So I'm not going to do the sales thing to you. I'm going to, you know, talk to you about the product. I'd ask me questions, but it instantly disarmed people, whether it's right or wrong. Like there's a stigma with salespeople of, are they going to try to talk me into blah, blah, blah. But I was like, look, I weigh in every day on what features should be built. And I'm a user of that. We built this to solve our own problem with this other SaaS app. And so there was instantly some credibility and a bit of, I believe that I got the benefit of the doubt on a lot of those calls because I was not only a, a client, but a co-founder as well. Yeah, and I think you should lean into that. And I think that's probably a good case for, for that industry as well. And his second question, I'm not sure if how much I have to say about this one, but he said, I've had extensive success in marketing and sales in the sports and leisure industry, selling an in-person service in the B2C world. Any tips on how to translate those skills into SaaS and the B2B world? Do you know what, I mean, I have, I guess, maybe some fleeting thoughts, but no like major connections for me moving from one to the other. No, not really. I mean, marketing and sales, I guess maybe marketing is more similar than sales. I've never done B2C sales. So, you know, so I don't, I'm not really familiar with it, but the way that I think about like B2B stuff, particularly high-end B2B sales, is that it tends to be almost like an outsourced consultant. Like that's what you are. Like your like your stance should almost be like, we have this solution. You know, if you if you use this solution, then you'll be better off. And like I'm the one who understands enough about your the problems you're facing that to be a trusted advisor in, in choosing what software to go with. Which I don't know if that translates from the B2C world as it relates to sports and leisure, I'm afraid. And he wraps up his email. He says, I'm also a father of two young kids, and I love how your podcast is geared towards people who don't have 80 hours a week for their startup. I really appreciate the episode you mentioned recently about raising entrepreneurial kids on the Zen Founder podcast. It's one of the most popular episodes. I'd love more of those. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, congrats, sir. Like, that's, it's super cool to hear the success story of, of you guys pairing up. Uh, would love to hear updates. You can email him in or send him his voicemails uh, whenever good things happen and, and let us know your progress. I'm sure people would like to follow that story. Our next one's a good one. I, I think you might have feelings on this one. And and what's funny is these all come in via email. And I actually responded to him via email because I was so worked up about this. So I, I'll let you answer. And then I get to kind of tell, tell you what I emailed. So it's from Dan. And he says, hey, Rob, we've recently acquired a SaaS that's making about $4,500 a month. So 4.5K MRR. We've since discovered that there's a significant number of lifetime users in the app. The previous owner sold them a lifetime plan for a one-off fee two to three years before the business changed hands. Now we're wondering what to do with these users. Can we offer them a deal and ask them to pay something on a recurring basis or do we just eat the cost? I wonder what you would do. Grateful for your advice and everything you do. Oh. What do you think? Oh, um, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> my first, my first two sentences in this, and then I respond to him is the seller screwed you. This is a bullshit move to not disclose and depending on what contracts are signed this could be seen as a breach of contract or fraud for not disclosing yeah so this this would be like so because it's like lifetime is funny right so so you do the m a stuff then there's this concept of like working capital and how you account for things and like you know what do you do cash accounting do you do accrual accounting all the stuff and then not as extreme a case of this if you're selling on January 1st, say, and on December 30th, the year before, you hold a big annual sale and you sell, you know, a million dollars worth of software, if you then sell the business on January 1st or 2nd, then the buyer very sensibly would argue that, okay, well, you have to leave the vast majority of the cash for the sale that you just did in the business because we're the one who have to service this. Like, we have to provide the service that's being 
uh, that's being used. And so this is the kind of thing that, you know, at least, I mean, 4,500 MRR is not probably, I don't know if this depends how the deal was done, but usually these kind of things aren't in place. But like for a bigger deal, like two, five million ARR, 10 million ARR, certainly these are things that would be taken against reps and warranties. And like, you know, you'd have clawback clauses to say, if you found this out afterwards, you could go after the seller and say, hey, you didn't disclose that like 20% of your customers aren't paying us and are, we were supposed to service them for for life. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a pretty big... Ah, so yeah, it's a pretty big piece of information to leave out, I think, in the sales process for sure. Yeah, as I said, I mean, I'm pretty bummed about it. I actually asked him for some clarifications and I said, how many are there? Do you get support requests from them? And he basically said, we do get customer support requests from them. We're paying for uh, an agent to answer from everyone and those are included. Because I was asking, what are the actual costs or is this negligible? And he basically said, we have 197 active subscribers in Stripe who are paying customers. Then we have 122 lifetime lifetime customers paid a one-time fee. It's hard to tell how many of these are active on a regular basis. But like I said in my previous point, it looks like quite a few are active judging by the volume of customer support requests. So I tell him, I, I feel the same way. So the seller screwed you. I said, I don't know your purchase price, but depending on how you feel about this, it might be worth reaching out to the seller and basically saying, you owe us some money back. Like you breached contract. I mean, basically talk to a lawyer if it's, you know, if you paid 30 grand for this, then it's probably not worth any of that. But if you paid 150, 200 grand for this, then like it starts to become a thing where getting a lawyer to write a, a letter is an issue. And it depends, like, you know, like, it depends how you did it. Like, a lot of the time, these templatized, like, deals for the smaller stuff, there is some stuff in there that's just like, you know, did they make reps and warranties in this, in the asset sale or whatever that they now have breached? You know, it could, it could be that there are certain things in there that says, yeah, we've disclosed all X, Y, Z. So there, there could be some remedies there. I mean, purely tactically going forward, like, the question is like, yeah, I, I agree. I think the seller at least were a little coy <laughs> about the truth. Disingenuous. <laughs> but yeah. I think like going forward, it's like, okay, what would I do with those customers? Like it's not the customer's fault. Like they paid for a lifetime thing and like, should they be punished because the, the company changed, you know, hands? My, my gut feeling says no. Me too. Like it depends. Like I would be like, is there something you can do to sort of not keep upgrading those people? Like, so if you're adding features, then just don't add it to these guys' plan and just be like, eventually some of those people will be like, hey, I want this feature, in which case you're like, great, now you need to upgrade out of your lifetime plan or whatever. That's probably the approach I would take. Yeah, and one other piece of advice I gave him was, in your shoes, I would try to assess the actual damage. So if you have a last login date in the database, you look through that, through the 122 customers and say, how many have actually logged in? My guess is it's not as many as you think because churn, it's just simple churn. Even when you're paying for things, often people stop using it. If you only have 5% of those people churned per month and, and some were sold four or five years, four years ago, I guess, like... Two, three years ago. Yeah, well, well I, I said 2017. Yeah. Oh, to yeah. 2020, so over three years. So there is, I mean, there's a strong possibility that there's maybe it's only 30 people, you know, 30 of these lifetimes, 50 of these lifetimes are still using it. And if, so my gut, I kind of wrote this whole email and then I said, my gut is that this is not worth pursuing. And if the company made a lifetime deal. Not from the legal side, yeah. Nor try to get the, like you said, get the existing customers to pay more. I think your time is better spent marketing and sales rather than looking backwards, right? This is a one-time thing. It's a big shock. But if you add, start adding 10, 20 new customers a month, which 
maybe you should 10, 20, 30 a new month, then this will become inconsequential, you know? So again, not knowing every detail and there's a principle to it. I mean, this is where that emotional side comes in. It's like the principle yeah. is my principle. I'd be pissed. Am I pissed That'd be my off principle. Right now? Yep. <laughs> but, but the actual, but is it worth the time and the effort and the energy to go back and do it? And that's where I would try to determine how many are actually using it. So, all right. Well, hopefully that was helpful, Dan, and super bummed for you, man. Uh, don't don't sell lifetime yeah. deals if you're in SaaS. I mean, AppSumo is probably the one exception I would say. And if you're going to sell, then you disclose when you exit that, hey, we do have these users and you can give reports of this is how much they, they use on a whatever basis. So, And also know that if you do an AppSumo deal or sell lifetime deals, there'll be some type of ding against you. You may have to give something back to the seller or whatever as, as you're going through. So hope that was helpful. Next question is oh about something that we hear about quite a bit it's how to do enterprise security assessments it's from philippe he says hey rob first of all thank you for the amazing show i'm a new listener but already in love with your show and consider it the best podcast for running a business i've discovered so far and i've tried a lot i have a specific question on enterprise security assessments i run a SaaS app we're a small startup it started as a hobby we're now six people, 25K MRR. We're averaging 7% month-over-month growth for the past two years. Every now and again, we get some individual users from big enterprises, and they usually send us a big information security self-assessment questionnaire with 150 questions or more that if we pass, it gets us on their internal list of approved vendors. Unfortunately, most of these questions are clearly targeted for bigger companies that have a lot more resources, and we need to answer negatively as we just don't have the time or human resources to have all these complicated procedures procedures and policies they ask for. So far, we've had mixed success in answering these assessments. Sometimes we have passed, but sometimes we have not basically failed or been rejected. And one time we actually got a simplified list of requirements to work against. But every single time, this was a ton of work for us, which is not justified by the single or few licenses that the individual and these companies need. That is the key statement and the <laughs> entire thing right there. And I'm going to let you answer this one first, but let me finish it. On the other hand, we always feel we need to do it as this is our step in. And once we're in, we can expand much more easily. Though even that is not always true, as it turns out different departments in the same company have different procedures and so on. So my question is, do you have experience with this? Is there a way around it for small businesses like ours? We're thinking of preparing our own document that answers the main questions we find relevant and offering that to them instead, but we're not sure if that would work. Any thoughts are helpful. You get the first crack at this one. Yeah, we see it all the time. <laughs> yep. A super, super common thing. And I think you're right. Like the the, the key thing is here, yeah, this this is inevitable if you're going to sell to to at large enterprises. Inevitable. Like in some cases, it's because they have their own internal policies that they might be, I mean, they might be doing certain things that they're promising to the public markets that they that they have to be able to do in terms of compliance or following some legal requirements on a national or supranational level. Like, there's a bunch of reasons why these guys will never say like, "Oh, you're a small company." That's totally fine. Don't worry about it. So I think that that's sort of the, the start of this. The second piece is like, okay, how do you get around it? I think one thing, like this certainly like once you have seen a bunch of these, there's a an option to have your own like this answers most of the questions most of the time type thing and and hope that that works. But honestly, like what we're seeing with, with TinySeed is most of the time is that they need some sort of a certification. And like it's just a lot of the time, particularly if you're, pricing right and selling the right size plan to these businesses, which is the key thing, 
then it's probably worth doing something like, you know, SOC2 certification or something like that, where you can be like, because if you're certified for these kinds of things, like SOC2 is probably the ones we see most often, then in some cases they're like, oh, that's okay. We don't need a questionnaire then if you've sort of checked the box. Because a lot of the time on the enterprise side, it's like, are they ISO so-and-so certified or SOC2 certified? If not, answer this giant list of questions. So in, in many cases, it's easier just to, well, just get certified and eat that cost because, and this I think is the key thing you're alluding to, if you're going to jump through the hoops of answering 150 questions and things, why would you even offer to sell like an individual plan or something? Like, like for most of these people, like they don't care. Like if they're having you jump through the hoops of doing this kind of security assessment, then price is immaterial to them for all intents and purposes. If you at the end of that sell them something that's, $29 a month or $79 a month, then you're probably leaving a couple of thousand dollars a month on the table for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, that was going to be my kicker is if you're going to do this minimum annual contract value, 25 grand. I think so. Yeah. That just becomes what it is. And maybe that's not a hard fit. Maybe it's 18 grand or 20 grand or something, but it's, it has to be worth your time period. And the offer of we'll do this and we'll buy a few licenses and then you'll be in the company. Nope. Sorry, can't do it, can't bid it. You know, we don't do RFPs and let without a minimum contract value of X amount. And again, somewhere between 20 and 40 grand is probably where I would put that. And you're right, the SOC2 is, is like the silver bullet for this. The struggle is, isn't it like 30 grand up front? I believe it's very expensive. Yeah, I mean, like the, what he's saying in terms of the size of his business and the growth that he has, like, I think it'll be worth it for him. I mean, I think it's a pricing thing. Like, I'm guessing you haven't got your enterprise, Philippe. You don't have your enterprise pricing right. That's why you're concerned about this. Like, you're either selling the wrong kind of plan or you don't have an enterprise plan that captures all the value that you're providing to these businesses. And once you solve that, you'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do SOC too. I mean, that could be the only difference. Like, it literally could be like, maybe the large enterprise, the Fortune 500 or whatever, are perfectly able to get by within the constraints of your like mid-price plan or whatever. But if they need this security assessment or they need single sign-on or they need some other custom contracts redlining your terms of service or something, that's what kicks them in on the enterprise plan and now it's 20 times more expensive. And that sounds insane like to, to most, particularly most like developer type entrepreneurs, but it really isn't. They're used to it. They're just like, oh yeah, sure. Like this is obviously like we, we just need this and it doesn't matter to us whether it costs $49 a month or $500 a month. It's just, it's immaterial, but it's obviously not immaterial to you. <laughs> like you said, it doesn't make sense from a, just a pure logic perspective, but that doesn't matter. That's how it is. Like we see this over and over. Yep. And this is some of the some of the most common advice that we give and some of the most common mistakes we see with new companies, well, I mean, in microconf and people who write in here and, and then in the tiny seed batches is the pricing is too low, you know, especially on the enterprise. So a couple other suggestions, Philippe, is episode 463 of this very show. I sat down with David Heller, of ReMB, and we spent the whole episode troubleshooting enterprise sales. That's the name of that episode. And part of that was this question of these security handouts. And we had similar conversation, but it was basically a build your own handout to be like, hey, this answers most of yours. He developed a lot of templates or templated answers shortcut things that he could use to fill in because the, the questions are common, but they're not all identical. You know, you can't have a whole doc that answers them all, but you can probably get 80% of the way there with just putting a bunch of stuff in Word docs and then pulling from there. And then of course, the way it as Anar said, the real way around it is to get this 
SOC 2, SOC 2. It's just expensive. And then you have annual maintenance and it, it's overhead of all the stuff. You know, you have need all these documents and procedures and such. And so if you're not there yet, then yeah, you just got to struggle through and make it worth your while in the meantime. So thanks for the question, Philippe. I think we have time for one more today. It's from Elon. He says, hello, first of all, really love the podcast and everything you do. Keep it up. I'm a full-time employee at a software company. I'm in a senior role and I've been here for over five years. I've come up with a SaaS product idea after finding a problem in my company's engineering process. I've started creating a product to mitigate this problem. It solves a niche problem in general software development. So it isn't related to my company's product. It's not competitive with them. I'd love to use this product at my current company, both to help me manage the technical issues and to help validate and grow the idea. Should I have any concerns with what I'm doing? Can my company claim my idea as its own? What should I do now to protect myself? Any other things I should consider? Does it make sense to validate a new side hustle idea at a company while working full-time at said company? Thanks for everything. Who knows? Maybe I'll be in Tiny Seed Batch 3. <laughs> this was sent last October, so I think it's a, <laughs> the application process is over, but maybe Batch 4 uh, applications open for that in July. Thanks for the question, Alon, Anar. Aside from, look at your employment agreement as the number one piece of advice because it, it's in writing. This is number one piece of advice. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I reading this, he's like, yeah, it's it's finding a problem in my company's engineering process. Immediately, that to me is like big red flag. Okay, started creating a product, solves a niche problem. So it's not related to my company's product. Okay, well, yeah, but there's all these things around did you do it on their time? Did you use their laptop when you were working on this? You know, like, I, th I think it's, it does depend where you, where you actually you are, both which state in the US or which country and depending on, you know, how the laws are there. But yeah, I would be concerned about this because it, 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 like he says, it's not related to my company product, but he did come up with it because of a problem that he found at work. And so it's like, I mean, I'm like, you'd almost need like, like a letter from the employer saying that, hey, yeah, this we're fine with this. Like, we don't want to claim the IP. Like, I can imagine, like, if this, if he did come to us and, and applied, you know, we would be concerned with the IP that, that exists, I think, with the existing company being like, this is our IP. He doesn't have the right to, to spin it out. What do you think? Yeah, I would certainly look at the employment agreement. I think trying to use it, I think building something to solve a problem at your current company without having pretty explicit permission by that i mean something in writing is not a good recipe just building something on the side to solve other problems outside of your company that's different right because it's so much more clean cut you can look at your ip agreement and your employment agreement and you can go to hr or the ceo or your boss or you know whatever the the structure is and basically you disclose and that's what you do right you say i'm working on a side project it's not competitive this is the name of it and you usually have to they have a form that you fill out and you say i'm working on xyz project and I want to retain ownership and I'm not using company hardware and I'm not doing it during work hours. And some companies now have a policy that I've heard, and I don't know how enforceable it is in which states, but some companies have a policy that like anything you build, even in your off hours on your own stuff, they own. And not to me, that's, that's bull****, but whatever, that's overreaching. But you know, if it's legally enforceable, then that's a tough position that you find yourself in. So definitely look at what you've signed 
and then consider your options. I knew two people, once we were dripping, lead pages merged, and I knew two people who started side projects that were, they didn't, neither of them reported to me, but they went to HR and basically got explicit permission because they didn't want the IP issue. You know, they didn't want there to ever be a question if they wanted to raise funds or sell or whatever. I mean, you, you need to have clean IP. And so, yeah, the, the thing that does concern me is this build it and manage the technical issue at my own company that really feels it's really gray. And I don't like gray when it comes to the law. I don't like gray when it, gray areas when it comes to IP. Yeah, no, because it's like, well, it's the utility tool that you built and used at work. It's like, well, don't you think your work would value it? I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. what I would think. So thanks for the question, Alana. I hope that was helpful. If you have a question for the show, email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Best if you attach an audio file, you go straight to the top of the stack. Otherwise, at this point, it looks like we have about 12 or 14 questions in the backlog. And I will get to those again as soon as possible. Anar Volset, you are on Twitter, E-I-N-A-R-V-O-L-L-S-E-T. And of course, people can go to tinyc.com slash thesis if they want to look at the amazing document you put together about tiny seeds investment thesis pretty impressive honestly if you haven't read this like even if you're not gonna invest in tiny seeds pretty it's pretty cool just the idea of you did data analysis because you're a data nerd and you. you uh and i say that with with all the love <laughs> but just looked at how things pan out and just that trying to take a more of a of an indexing approach into early stage SaaS is is really the way to go and that's that's what allowed us uh in a big reason to raise this second fund that's that's going so well. So I'm excited about it, man. Me too. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Anar for joining me on the show. If you like these shows, I would really appreciate a five-star review and wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Is that what it's called these days? Google something or other where you Google music? Is that, uh, who, who knows? Just look for a star button and, and try to hit the five. Really appreciate it. I believe we're approaching a thousand worldwide podcast ratings. You don't even have to do a full review with sentences and verbiage and compliments and things like that. If you hit the five star and you submit that, I appreciate it. I've been trying to move towards that 1000 rating mark. Thanks for joining me this week, and I will be in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.